Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The thing that I found sort of exhilarating was the sort of honest dedication. I wish people could see what was going on in this meeting, or I could see how these people are going about, you know, mapping out this operation they're going to undertake. You know, you can't talk to a lot of people about your job. You end up feeling as if you can share really only to people who understand it within the agency, and that that's a strength and a weakness in some respects. Every special question for you. You, know, you were the first female deputy director. Gina's the first female director. Tell people why that's important, why that matters. I undervalued the degree to which seeing women and a variety of different styles and approaches to leadership meant to younger women who were coming up through the ranks and who can say to themselves, you know, that's somebody, I could be that, you know, I can be the director. John Brennan. John, since leaving government, has chosen to challenge the president quite directly. And I just want to know how you guys think about that. This is somebody who has spent decades in national security and intelligence. He can provide context and he has credibility and he has the ability to analyze and tell you when something's wrong. I want that voice. It's not just that John has you know, a minor policy difference with what the administration is doing. I think what John is doing is sounding the alarm that we are being governed today by a president, by administration that is several deviations away from the norm. Avril Haines and David Cohen, like me, were deputy directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Avril served as John Brennan's deputy from 2013 to 2015, and David did likewise from 2015 to 17. Today, the three of us are going to discuss what it's like to be the number two in our nation's premier intelligence organization. 
We're going to have some fun, but we'll also delve into some serious issues as well. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. A career at Raytheon is a career in innovation. Here, you'll advance technologies that make the world a safer place. Join our team today. Learn more at Raytheon.com slash careers. Avril, David, welcome. It is great to have you both here. It is great to have you on the show. You know, there has to be some joke about three deputy directors of CIA walking into a bar, you know, maybe in <laughs> Moscow. Yeah. Um, but it's great to have you guys on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I want to let our listeners know that today's show is going to be a little bit different. Usually I only ask questions, but today I'm actually going to participate in the discussion <laughs> as well answering some of the questions. So I think what that means for you guys is that it's fair game for you guys to ask questions as well. Great. Okay? So we'll just, we'll just take this kind of wherever it goes. David, I want to start with you. And I know that every day it is different, but what does a typical day look like for the deputy director of CIA? Well, for me, and I think it's probably different for each of you, for me, uh, it began with reading the PDB, uh, the president's daily brief on the way into work. And then when I got there, it, was, it took me about 25 minutes or so to get into work in the morning. I'd get there and so I you would, read it in the car. On the I way read in? it in the car on the way in. I would sometimes try and work out ahead of time. Uh, so that was a typical day. I would get up way too early and try to work out so I didn't uh, turn into a big fat mess. And then I would meet with my staff. I had uh, some executive assistants, um, and I would meet with them and talk to them about what was in the PDB. Uh, and I had a briefer who would come uh, and join in that conversation. I usually made it through the PDB, so um, I didn't get briefed. The, on the briefer pieces. was not in the car with you. Briefer's not in the car. And then, you know, the typical day would unfold with, you know, preparations for deputies committee meetings, preparations for meetings with others in the intelligence community, and and a fair amount of work inside the building. Um, there was a lot of, and I thought it was really important, meeting with folks in the building who were working on various projects, whether it's analysts or operators or people in, the, in support, DS&T or in the science and technology operation or in the new digital innovation uh, directorate to understand what they're doing, provide some direction, try and, and, uh, and help them understand what, what Director Brennan, who was the director when I was there, and you guys as well, um, was uh, was hoping to accomplish. Ariel, what yeah, would you add to that? That's not dissimilar from mine. I mean, I would really work hard to try to build in a Starbucks break at some point <laughs> during the day. I know that will come as a huge surprise to the two of you, but... But multiple Starbucks breaks. No, but, but truly... People should know that yeah. there is a Starbucks right. in CIA. There and is. it is one of the highest grossing it's Starbucks <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the nation. Yeah. It was one of the, the reasons that I knew the CIA was the right place for me. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. But, you know, but I, I wonder, was it different for you, Michael? Was it... No, it wasn't. Um, I think people, you know, should appreciate, uh, you know, David's point about preparing for meetings downtown. So there's the preparation, you know, which usually takes a good hour in your office talking to folks and thinking about what you want to say and then going to that meeting, right, which takes 15 minutes to 20 minutes to get there. And then in the meeting, right, at the White House, a couple of hours at a time, maybe multiple sessions, maybe multiple deputies committee meetings, you know, maybe going to the Hill. 
and then coming back to the agency, driving all the way back to the agency and then doing a debrief, right? So that is a huge amount of time. As important as the internal stuff is, the external stuff pulls you away from the internal stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember I used to get a card every day uh, that would have my schedule on it so that I could keep track of what was going on. And the question for me was always, what font is the card in? (laughs) (laughs) If it's 10 point, like how much scarier that is, you know, but how many things you could pack in during a day and how you felt as if every moment had to count. And it's true. Like I, one of the things I learned from the job was how to prepare and how to read while you're in the car and make calls and make every moment yeah. be productive in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I thought one of the difficult things about the job, although it was exhilarating, was that virtually every minute was scheduled. You had something to do. There, was, there were few occasions where I sat at my desk and thought, I've got a half hour of unscheduled time here um, where I can, you know, read the newspaper or or even catch up on the stack of of you know of briefings that had been uh, accumulating. I mean it was great. It, it was you know a constant flow of really interesting stuff, but it was unrelenting. Yeah, I had this habit of if there was too much scheduled, I would say there's too much on the schedule and if there were any any empty spots I'd say how come there's empty spots on the schedule? <laughs> I did think it was important to get out and walk around. Um not only to the people who work directly for us, right? The heads yeah. of the the directorates the executive director, but actually just walk through the building and pop into an office and and mm-hmm. see what people are doing and yeah. you know, show your face a little bit. I think that's really important. Yeah. So I assume that you both loved the job. We've talked about this before. Yeah. And I'd really love to know why you think you loved it and what did you love most about it? Avril, let's start with you this time. Yeah. I, I love the people. Honestly, I loved constantly feeling as if I was learning new things. It's when I feel most alive in any job. Um, I love the fact that when I came to work, no matter how long the day was, you know, no matter how late it was, I felt as if I was contributing to something that mattered in a sense. You know, the the camaraderie within the agency is really something quite special. That's and a family. Totally. It's, yeah. it's a remarkable experience. Which I think flows in yeah. part from the fact that it's a secret intelligence organization and you can't go home. Right, and tell your family about what you're doing. So yeah. you tend to group, right? Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think it's it, it attracts people who are not interested in fame and glory because you're clearly not going to get it at the CIA, right. right? You know, but you're really interested in doing something that you think is worthwhile for the country. And I, I think that's a, um, you know, there's a self-selecting mechanism there in a way. And it brings people together. As you say, you know, you can't talk to a lot of people about your job. You end up feeling as if you can share really only to people who understand it within the agency. And that also creates a culture that's uh, things. And that, that's a strength and a weakness in some respects, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. David? So I wholeheartedly agree with everything Avril said. And it's just to sort of put a little a twist on it. I used to, when I would talk to people and I was in the agency, and now, and they would ask me, you know, what did you enjoy about the agency? Um, the thing that that I found sort of exhilarating was the the sort of honest dedication of the people working there. And I had this experience multiple times when I was there, which I, th- I thought, I wish people could see what was going on in this meeting, or I could see how these people are going about, you know, mapping out this operation they're going to undertake. Um, and the care with which, it's, with which it was done, the fidelity to law with which it was done, and 
you know, it was, you know, for someone like me, and I think Avril similarly, who had the opportunity to sort of parachute into the agency after spending, you know, many, many years doing other things, and to to see sort of the this, this veneer of mythology, both good and bad, sort of stripped away, and the, the way that the people in the agency approached their job was, I thought, really affirming. Yeah, I had I, I had that same thought a lot sitting in meetings, and I would think there needs to be a MythBusters, right, that yeah. comes yeah. in and, and 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 tapes one of these meetings because there's so many myths out there about yeah. CIA being rogue and not being yeah. competent, right, yeah. and it would just blow all those away. Yeah. You know, I loved the job too. There wasn't a single day I didn't want to go to work in 33 years for for all the reasons that you guys said. You know, I loved my daily intelligence briefing. I thought that was the mm-hmm. most special hour, right, where you can yeah. really dig into the yeah, substance exactly. and ask questions, uh, somebody who's really studied it and, yeah. you know, do taskings and get follow-ups. I, I loved that. I loved traveling overseas mm. um, to visit our officers. Yeah. I loved sitting with first-tour case officers and listening to them talk about the cases they were running. I, I, I thought that was all extraordinarily special. So was this the best job you ever had in government? <laughs> so I had... I had thought that my job at Treasury was the best job in government, and it's a fantastic job, until I showed up at the agency. And absolutely, I mean, the and the things about it that were that really were great is a little bit picking up on what Avril said. Is it was an opportunity, you know, at age fifty-two, whatever I was when I started, to learn an enormous amount about the world, about our governments, but but even more importantly, about how the world operates and how we operate in the world. It's an opportunity that I think few people you know, have. And I, I felt extraordinarily privileged just to have the opportunity to learn that. And I think that's a, that's a, it's a great job if you can constantly be learning. Um, and, and it was consequential. And the, I mean, I think the, what makes a job enjoyable is that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you think I'm going to do something today that it makes a difference hopefully for the good. Um, and, and I did think that, that in that job you had the opportunity to, to do good and you had that almost unique opportunity um, to do good every day. Yeah. And you had Deputy National Security Advisor, Deputy Director of CIA. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I, I would take Deputy Director of CIA pretty much any day over Deputy National Security Advisor in some respects, but it's, they're very different. And, in the, and the reason I say that is not... I mean, I loved being Deputy National Security Advisor, too. It's just when you're in the agencies, you actually feel as if you have the capacity to get things done. And that is a that's a, a heady feeling in some respects. It, you know, you actually are taking policy and you're watching it be implemented in a sense. And uh, and you're taking action to try to, you know, do something exactly in the interest of the United States government. And you see how that translates in a sense. And uh, and when you're in the national security advisor position, in a way, you're a glorified staffer um, for the president, which is a remarkable thing. And one of the most incredible things about that job is that you get to be there for all of these incredibly important meetings with the president and, you know, leaders and kinds of things and watch his decision-making process in a very sort of intimate way. And you get to, you know, chair the deputies and, uh, you know, and, and facilitate that policymaking process in a way. But but it's a very different job. And it's um, – and in some respects – 
being a staffer is more suited to my personality. I'm a bit of an introvert and I'm not somebody who's very comfortable sort of being out there constantly. But at the agency, you're a leader of the agency. You need to be out there. You need to do things like ribbon cuttings and, you know, talking to the workforce and so on. And that pushed me out of my comfort zone, but it was also a growing experience. Good yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Both of you. So, so, so let's shift to a discussion a bit about the agency's performance. I want to give our listeners a sense of how the agency is doing in serving the American people and serving the president. And as you guys think about that, I'd love to hear about your perception of the agency's performance before you got to the agency. Mm-hmm. Right? You were at the White House every year as a legal advisor at the NSC. David, you were at Treasury as an undersecretary. So you saw the agency, you used the agency's product, and then you went to the agency. So how do you think about the agency's performance you know, in general and then in that context? So when I was at Treasury, we were heavily dependent on the intelligence community to provide us information to fuel the sanctions programs that, that I helped to oversee. Uh, I had a, a very good impression, I thought, of, of the agency as the sort of the lead analytic core of the, of the U.S. government in terms of giving us the, the information we needed for our sanctions programs to work. What I did not appreciate and you know, soon came to learn as soon as I got to the agency was how little I knew about the agency and what the agency did from my perspective at the Treasury Department, which I thought was, it was, I think, a very healthy relationship. I got out to the agency and realized there was a vast amount of additional understanding, analysis, operational activity going on than I had appreciated uh, when I was at Treasury. So I... I think the agency, and by and large, and we can get into more detail on this, does a, a spectacular job in the areas where there's a focus and investment and, and policy interest. I, I had the, the privilege when I was at Treasury to be in one of those areas. So just building on what David was saying, I, and I'm really interested in your perspective on this, Michael, too, but I, it's um, – if you think of the way I do at least um, – Watching policymakers at the National Security Council trying to uh, absorb a, a huge range of issues. It's impossible for any one person to be an expert in all of these different issues. And not only are they expected to cover this huge range of issues, but they're also expected to do it at a sort of a rapid fire pace and to be making decisions about frankly, what should they even spend their time on, right? Which of these things are real crises, which are not real crises? You know, how should we prioritize these issues? And then what should we do about them? You you recognize the premium that's put on information, on information that both is accurate, that gives you a sense of what's actually happening in the moment, but also provides context for what's occurring. And the one place that you can get that kind of information where – you don't have an agency generally that's trying to spin you on essentially the policy outcome that they're interested in or the particular decision that they're interested in making is from the intelligence community. And what I saw both as a lawyer but then ultimately you know, from the national security advisor position, deputy national security advisor position, is, is just how critical that was at so many different moments to provide context to be able to make the kinds of decisions that you need to make at the National Security Council. And I think it's more important now than ever in a sense yeah. in, in that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think all of that is right. 
I do think in terms of collection that are, at least this is five years ago, right? I don't Mm -hmm. know what's happening today. But in terms of collection, I think the record is mixed. I think there are issues where we knock the ball out of the park. And if we could tell Americans, here's what we know about X, Y, or Z, they would say, oh my gosh, you guys are doing a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's some areas where there are some significant gaps because the job is hard, because we don't have all the resources we need, because there's only 24 hours in the day. But there's some areas where if I could tell the American people, you know, we don't have access to this, this or this, they'd say, wow, you know, you're not doing your job. So I do think on the collection side, it's mixed. I'm not sure there's a lot that can be done about it. Um, Did that change a lot over the period that you were in? No, I I think, no, I don't. I think, you know, during the, 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 the existence of the Soviet Union, during the Cold War, that's where the focus was. Yeah. So we were very good on that and we were less good on other things. And then, you know, after 9-11, we were right. very good on CT and there were some holes in other places. Yeah. And I remember Tom Donnellan saying once to me, you know, we we're talking about a particular issue. It was very, very important to him and very, very important to the president. He said the analysts have taken this as far as they could take it without new information, right? Um, new yeah. clandestine information. Um, and he was both giving me a compliment, but also saying, hey, right, there's more you need to do here. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think just to sort of build on that a little bit, coming from Treasury and having the opportunity to sit with economic policymakers, I think th- that point that the the agency is very good in areas where it is invested and, you know, and has a long-term investment, but not so good in areas where, where frankly, it's, it's hard and we haven't invested is, you know, describes economic analysis, I think, quite well. We don't, we do not do a great job, I think, by and large, in, not in the sort of micro economic analysis, you know, following the money, the agency and, and the whole intelligence community is pretty good at that, but understanding broader trends in economics in a way that is useful to economic policymakers, I think that that's an area where I think both as a matter of collection and analysis, the agency could do better. So, so, so what do you guys think is the greatest strength and the greatest weakness of the place? And maybe I'll go first here. Yeah. yeah. So I happen to believe that people and organizations' weaknesses flow from their strengths. And it's actually a great way to think about people, right? I'm a horrible listener, and I'm in part a horrible listener because when I ask somebody a question – my mind is so analytic that I'm thinking about what the answer is rather than listening to them, right? That's a weakness that flows from a strength. I think the agency's great strength and great weakness is the same thing. I think it's focused on mission. It's a great strength for the obvious reason, right? It's a weakness because we really don't want to talk about or do anything unless it has to do with mission. So trying to get somebody to go to a leadership training course, for Mm -hmm. example, or focus on anything like that is really, really hard at the agency because people are saying, don't take me away from the job. Don't take me away from the mission. That's the way I think about it. Have yeah, you? it's interesting because I I, um, I started off as a lawyer in the government and uh, and it's the same issue in legal offices generally, right? Like you get promoted because you're a really great lawyer, not because you're a good manager. And there was never sort of an effort to really, you know, 
promote leadership and management in the office. And I saw a version of that, I think, at the agency. And I, I agree that's an issue. Um, and every director has tried to tackle that. Yeah. Every director yeah. has I know. It's, it's a perennial, it's a perennial right? problem. issue. Exactly. Right. And you really sort of have to change the culture yes. of the place in order to actually have an impact yes. on that. And I think that's true of a few things like that. But I don't – I you know, another – and I agree it's also strength because it is true. You know, David sort of alluded to this in his initial talk about the agency. It, it is also really impressive how – focused people are on mission and and how effective we are at being able to get things like in a crisis, get out the door in an innovative, creative way to actually do something about the challenge. But I also think, you know, in in many respects, the the value that I put on the table earlier on of being an institution that's capable of providing analysis fully without having a dog in the policy fight is another great strength that the agency brings to the table that you just don't see from from other places in the government and that I think is critical. But I also think in your sort of strengths are also weaknesses. I think there's a, a weakness that comes with that, which is in a sense – because there's so much value put on being objective and trying to provide that analysis without having, uh, you know, sort of a spin on it in a sense, you also find that the agency can be isolated in ways that is not always healthy. And uh, and sort of integrating the agency's work, for example, into things below the deputy's level um, is a challenge. And I think also the agency's ability to pull from other agencies, essentially the economic piece that David mentioned, but also other places. The tendency toward insularity. Yeah, exactly. That, that isn't always a yeah. useful thing for yeah. the analysis in a sense. David, yeah. quick thought? Yeah. Just sort of on the same theme of strengths and weaknesses, I think the agency is is very, very good at providing both collection and analysis on the critical issues of the day where I think the agency could do better. And and, and I think this is also a perennial issue that, that both, I think, directors and folks at the NSC have pressed the agency to do is to look over the horizon, to understand challenges, really significant challenges that are coming but that have not yet fully ripened into a crisis and, you know, and to alert policymakers to that at a time when there can be policy changes that can can avert a big problem down the road. Which is not to say the agency doesn't do any of that, but it but because of the intense focus on mission and on the crisis of the day and on providing on the inbox, yeah. yeah, the inbox, right, providing policymakers what they need to deal with the current crisis that that sometimes gets left behind. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters after a message from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. Do you hear that? That's the sound of leadership being tested in battle. And when they return home, thousands of U.S. veterans turn to Raytheon-sponsored programs to put their skills to work in the private sector. From scholarships to peer networks to innovation centers, we're helping veterans and their families overcome new challenges achieve new goals, and find new success. It is our privilege to serve those who make the world a safer place. Okay, so, so Avril, David, let's shift to talk about some of the important issues of the day. And the place I'd like to start is the, the challenge that Director Haspel faces mm-hmm. in a very dangerous world with a lot of threats and a lot of challenges, so a tremendous amount of work to do operating in a political environment here in Washington that is probably the toughest that I've ever seen, right? So how do you think about 
the challenges she is facing, how she's doing. David. I think she has an extraordinary, extraordinarily hard job in part, and I think there's no reason to, to sugarcoat this, in part because the president is not a serious consumer of intelligence, um, if he consumes it at all. And that, you know, the agency is geared to providing its analysis to the first customer, to the president, and having the president at least understand it and then make judgments. And I think, you know, all, none of us are obviously inside right now, but all the reporting, and there's no reason to doubt this, is that the president does not pay a great deal of attention to what the agency is producing. So I think that makes her job hard. I think she's done, she's done well, and I think we saw this recently in the context of, of the analysis regarding the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, where she went up to the Hill, quite clearly delivered what was the CIA's analytic line to Congress when, frankly, former Director Pompeo and Secretary of Defense Mattis didn't. Uh, and I think that that uh, she wavered initially on that, right? She uh, well, she didn't go. Initially. She didn't go initially. Yeah, it was, right? it was, it was I was a little worried why. about that moment, right? Yeah. But but she did go, yeah. and she did evidently say exactly what the agency right. thought. Yeah, and I thought that, and I thought that was a important moment uh, in her directorship, to, and to to plant the the agency's flag that that she is able to present the, you know, truth to power in that fashion. She seems to have made a decision to stay out of the public eye, right, in yeah. a way that previous directors were trending to do more and more of, right? How do we think about that? I mean, I don't – I suspect that doesn't surprise any of us right. knowing her, right? I mean, she's um, not somebody who I think relishes the spotlight in that kind of way, and I'm very sympathetic to that because I feel the same way. But, I mean, I, and I think she's uh, – I think that's probably a good choice for her right now, although she did just give a recent speech. And I think it would be great to see more of those because I think she is really, uh, you know, a terrific face of the agency. I think she's somebody who can talk to folks around the country and explain what it is that the intelligence community does and the value that it brings and explain, you know, things that are not obvious to many people, I think, in this country. Yeah. You know, I think it, it not being out there fits her personality. So I'm not surprised from that perspective. And I'm also not surprised you know, from a political perspective, because if you go if you're the director of CIA and you go out there and you get asked, is Iran living up to its commitments mm-hmm. under the nuclear agreement? And the answer to that question is yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Your boss doesn't want to hear that. Yeah. And if you lean towards your boss and, you know, raise some questions about whether the Iranians are doing that, you put yourself at odds with your building. And if you lean towards your building, you put yourself at odds with your boss. So it's very dangerous yeah. to be out there, right? Yeah. So I think it's probably it probably makes sense yeah. for her to be a little quiet. It does give yeah. a little myth, bring back yeah. a little myth of the nation's spy master too, I think, a little bit. So I think that's right. And I think she's in a terribly difficult spot because of the you know, the fact that the policy direction is on a whole range of issues obviously contrary to what the analytic line of the agency is. I do think it's important, and, and granted this is not Director Haspel's you know, comfort zone, it is important, I think, for the director of the CIA to make an effort to be out in public and to talk about what the agency does. That doesn't mean that he or she needs to get deep into the analysis on particular issues, but talking about how this you know, secret intelligence service goes about doing its work, I think is a 
is one of the the key requirements of a leader in the intelligence community. Yeah. Every special question for you about women at CIA. Yeah. You were the first female deputy director. Gina's the first female director. Gina just appointed the first female head of operations. Tell people why that's important, why that matters. Yeah, I will. But I want to say one thing about the two of you. um, Michael, I credit you with uh, convincing me that, uh, that I would be good for the agency coming into the job as the deputy director. Coffee, and Having coffee at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> indeed, exactly, at Starbucks. <laughs> the, uh, yes. And I credit both of you as being men that I've had the great, honestly, joy to serve with, I, who make a special effort, frankly, to think about diversity in the context of your work and promoting people and trying to change the culture in a way that's productive uh, for women. And I think that's um, that's something I can't um, tell you just how much it means, I think, to so many people around us that uh, benefited from that. Because I look at my own career, and honestly, I have uh, so many women who went before me to thank, but also a lot of the men that made space for that in that context. So um, anyway, I think it's critically important in ways that I didn't recognize, frankly, at the beginning of my career, which is to say that I think I undervalued the degree to which seeing women and a variety of different styles and approaches to leadership meant to younger women who were coming up through the ranks and who can say to themselves, you know, that somebody, I could be that, you know, I can be the director of the CIA, I can do that. And moreover, to see that, you know, whatever their particular style is, is represented in leadership in some way. It, you know, it has an impact and it has more of an impact on me emotionally than I, you know, even give it credit for at times. Just watching Gina, you know, go through that process and take the mantle of being the director of the CIA, seeing Beth be, you know, uh, promoted in that way. And I recognize the value that that has for women. And one of the moments that I had similar to, to David's description of, I wish somebody could be in this meeting and watching mm-hmm. this, the absolutely astoundingly talented young women in the agency is just on a daily basis with a, mm-hmm. just remarkable. I, you watch these, right? I mean, yeah, I know and, you've and, all seen absolutely, it. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think and I agree with you 100%, but I think before you and Gina and now Beth, they always wondered whether they could get to the top, and now they know they can, and and I think that must be terribly, terribly motivating for them. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. David, let me, let me ask you a special question, which is about the modernization mm-hmm. of the agency that Director Brennan put in place. Tell us what that was. And tell us how well you thought it was working and how much of a difference you thought it was making when you left the building in January of 2017. Yeah, it was um, in concept actually quite simple. The idea was we have an agency with capability in a variety of different areas, whether it's in collection, in analysis, in support, in science and technology, and that the agency would do better would be more effective if we found a way to not operate in silos, but to operate collaboratively. Um, and to and so the idea was essentially to reorganize the agency so that the different capabilities, collection, analysis, support, technology, 
were combined and focused on particular mission sets, whether parts of the world or specific subject matters. It was controversial um, because it and there was, was there was just to let people yeah. know there was a couple of places where that was the case exactly before modernization, right. counterterrorism yeah, being was, one, yeah. and those tended, in my view, to be the most effective organizations. Yeah. Right, and it was so it was building on that, and so the counterterrorism center combined all of these elements, and that that was sort of the germ from which the the modernization grew, and it was disruptive. We were talking before about how the agency is very mission-focused and doesn't like to do things other than, you know, put their head down and charge ahead. It required people to sort of lift their head up and think about working in the agency in a different way. But I think by and large, obviously not uniformly, but by and large, people understood that collaborating, combining the capabilities of the agency in this way would make the agency more effective, both in terms of you know, the sort of the core mission of what we're doing, as well as helping to integrate with the rest of the uh, the rest of the intelligence community and the rest of the policy community. You know, we had sort of two years uh, to put this in place. It was starting to to gel, and I'm you know happy to say that the director Pompeo, although I think was initially skeptical, by and large kept in place modernization, and Director Haspel has as well. Can I say one other thing about modernization to sure. pick up on your question to real on on women in the agency. One of the the key elements beyond the sort of the reorganization was an emphasis on diversity and on ensuring that the agency identified and promoted and uh, and invested in officers from, you know, a very, very diverse backgrounds, both because it was effective for the agency. We need officers who can operate anywhere in the world in various cultures and with various languages. And the more that we have officers that come from diverse backgrounds, the better able we are to do that, but also because it was the right thing to do. And I, you know, I give enormous credit to Director Brennan for being very sort of courageous and forthright and pressing diversity to a point where, you know, there were people who, who were, um, uh, you know, so I think uncomfortable with, the extent to which he was doing it, but it was absolutely the right thing to do for the agency. So you're at the NSC as the Deputy National Security Advisor, as they're digging into modernization. Are you seeing an impact into what they're bringing to the table? Yeah, I mean, I, and while I was there, we did the review that basically pulled together what it was that um, would be the plan for modernization, essentially. Right. And, uh, and and so I sort of, you know, I obviously knew what was happening and had seen the beginnings of it moving through. And, and just to, before getting there, um, it, the NSC, I, you know, another aspect of what I saw at least was when agency officers would go into uh, conflict zones or into areas like that where you saw a microcosm of this kind of conflation of the different, um, you know, essentially directorates that, that David mentioned, you'd see that extraordinary value of basically the interaction between the different places. And and it really was, you know, they you could see the younger generation just getting very excited at the prospect of actually trying to bring that into headquarters and make that work in a way that was effective. And when it came to being then at NSC and watching this happen, one of the most obvious 
places uh, from the NSC perspective of what was happening and, and sort of the impact of modernization was that you had somebody sitting at the table in the deputy's discussion sometimes when the deputy wasn't available who actually could represent all of the different parts of the agency. Because what would happen, you know, when uh, previously when the deputy wasn't available, you'd have, you know, the lead of a directorate usually there, like either analysis or operations yeah. or, is it, right? And yeah. instead of having somebody who actually represented all of these different directorates, and that really made an enormous difference because they could bring to bear essentially the expertise and the knowledge of all the different pieces of the agency when providing the perspective of the yeah, agency. Yeah. So my take, and, 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 and John, John talked to me before he did this, and I was supportive, and so everybody now knows that out there. But I do think that it is extraordinarily important to mitigate the downsides of any organizational structure. Mm-hmm. And I think the downsides of this organizational structure are the tradecraft of the work, mm-hmm. both operational and analytic. And it doesn't mean that it has to suffer. It means you simply need to pay a lot more attention Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to do that before because there was one person in charge of analysis and one person in charge of operations, and they could set a standard and they could hold everybody to it. And now there's 10, 11, 12 people doing that. So there is a risk to that, and you just have to mitigate it. I I want to talk about John Brennan. We all worked for him. Mm -hmm. We all admire him greatly. We all know his record of public service. We all know that there are Americans, this is literally, there are Americans who are alive today who wouldn't be without John's work. John, since leaving government, has chosen to challenge the president quite directly. And I just want to know how you guys think about that. A former senior intelligence official, career intelligence official, Mm -hmm really stepping, I know he doesn't think about it this way, he doesn't think about it being political, but really stepping into the political arena. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I'm very supportive of him speaking out on these issues. And and here's sort of my thinking on this. I, I think he sees the current situation as an aberration and really is deeply concerned about what's happening right now, you know, concerned about some of the uh, approaches that the President Trump has taken and how it's affecting, among other things, the intelligence community and our national security. And when it comes to... And very concerned about where all this is going. Exactly. Not just where we are. Right, exactly. And how this will affect <clears throat> the country's ability to, to, yeah, survive in the future in the way that he imagines it can. And I think... In a moment such as that, it's hard to imagine anybody not wanting people with the experience that John Brennan has had speaking up. In other words, this is somebody who has spent decades in national security and intelligence, who has served multiple presidents of different parties, who's seen so many things that the average person has not seen. And he can provide context and he has credibility and he has the ability to analyze and tell you when something's wrong. And I want that voice in the public discourse. I want to hear what he has to say. I don't think that everybody has to agree with him. I certainly think you can judge for yourself whether or not what he has to say is is something that you want to take on board. But I, I would not want to silence that voice. Do you think, David, there's a cost to the agency at all? I, I think that is 
a concern of people who are really close to the agency, but is not the, but I think as a, as a general matter, not, there is not a cost to the agency. He's a former director. He's a, he's a private citizen now. As Avril said, he's someone who has spent a career in intelligence and national security and has a, a perspective and a special authority um, from his service that I think is valuable for him to bring into the public space. And it's not just that John has, you know, a minor policy difference with what the administration is doing from what the prior administration was doing. I think what John is doing is sounding the alarm that we are being governed today by a president, by administration that is several deviations away from the norm, um, that there's a president who sort of lacks the intellect, the ethics, the capability to run the country in a way that that protects the country going forward. And he has seen others in other countries, you know, behaving in this fashion and sees where that leads. And I think it's important to recognize that it's not just John. You have former agency seniors like John McLaughlin or Mike Hayden, um, who are also publicly critical of the direction that the administration is taking. Again, not because it's like minor policy differences, but because of a real serious concern. You have former senior military officers, you know, Stan McChrystal, Bill McRaven, you know, people who have spent their life defending this country who are, you know, deeply alarmed at what's happening. And I think they have every right and I, I would say an obligation to speak out. So I agree with all of that. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Where I end up is I wonder how many minds are being changed because people are so firmly pro-president or firmly anti-president. And boy, it's hard to move a person from one box to the other. And there aren't a lot of people in between. Right. So I wonder, I just wonder, I don't disagree with what John's doing, but I just wonder how many minds end up being changed at the end of the day. But but should that be the... You know, should that be the reason not to talk? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, because part of what I think is... Just an observation. Yeah. Look, part of what David's saying, too, which I subscribe to as well, is that all of these people that David mentioned are folks who are um, geared not to engage in political discussion or to criticize the president, frankly, right? They just, you know, by the virtue of their professional um, experience and the culture within which they grew up, and yet they're speaking out. And I think it may not change people's minds who are, uh, you know, core supporters of one side or the other, but I do think over time there's a moment at which people start to recognize gee, something's different here. This is this is really kind of extraordinary. And they may not listen at the moment that it's said, but there may come a, a tipping point at which those voices are, or the are heard. Grows. Exactly. Yeah, it becomes, and becomes more significant. And I also think when those people speak up, it gives people the the sort of space within which to begin to have that discussion in a way that they haven't before. Because one of the key challenges I think we're facing right now is the country is so extraordinarily divided and on so many issues. Politics is a clear one, but there are a lot of different divisions that we're dealing with. And, you know, I believe, as I know you two do as well, that we are going to be stronger if we're united. We're going to be more capable of promoting the interests of the United States and its citizens if we're united. And I think... 
that's something that if we can actually engage in a public discourse where we disagree and where we have views uh, to express and so on, that actually promotes being united, that's what we're trying to move for. And these are the kind of people who can do that, who Mm -hmm. recognize both sides of arguments, who see the value in having different politics and different views, but nevertheless recognize once you've gotten to the aberration, essentially, that, you know, David described. You guys, um, our time's up. You guys have been terrific. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank Thank you. you. That was Avril Haynes and David Cohen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another edition of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.